0: welcome to episode four of undecided podcast my name is tara mahoney i'm here with my co-host kate reeve hi kate hi and we're drinking a chardonnay (laughs) Uh, because kate and i finished a very bad school week of exams and assignments wait we gotta get the ding uh We're coming at you this week uh, with a uh, kind of a policy-heavy episode on climate change mm. um, and uh, and uh, carbon pricing in Ontario. Um, but uh, first, uh, we're going to go to the newsroom. Uh, cue newsroom music. <laughs> <Ba-na-na-na-na>. <laughs> Uh, So first uh, thing we'd like to talk about this week is Doug Ford's uh, response to the budget and also all the other conservative responses to the budget, um, uh, which I I found were were fairly uh, funny because I can't imagine they were super popular, although I'm sure they were well-received among fiscal conservatives. Mm. Basically, all the conservatives are coming out of the woodwork uh, the Andrew Shears of the world uh, Being like They're spending up their hoo-ha's <laughs> Economic responsibility <laughs> Yeah yeah, um, And I just find that they fall kind of flat uh, When When um, You know measured in comparison to Social programs Free dental care it's like
1: yeah, I think that people have a right to be concerned about the deficit, and I don't begrudge that them expressing that that like that opinion. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's kind of silly to look at it without considering the benefit that this will have for mm-hmm. a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and like we talked about in the episode last week, there are a lot of holes in this, mm-hmm. but it will be a good, pretty good first step. Yeah, for some people.
0: One thing that I uh, was speaking to someone about this week is that. Um, the interest rate on deficits uh, on budget deficits for um, governments is actually quite low. So while it does cost taxpayers money, it's not like um, it's not like the interest rate you get charged in your credit card. Um, so that's something to think about because he because uh, Ford talks about like servicing the debt one. Um, a uh, pill- billion dollars a month. But in re- like reference to our GDP, it's not that much. It's a small percentage. Um, so I think that's also something to take into consideration. Um, there's an article on a website called, a left-wing media website this m- month called North 99, and they compare the spending of our GDP, um, our spending percentage of our GDP on the budget compared to Scandinavian gdp percentage uh so gdp is gross domestic product it's like what uh it's like what our whole economy is it's the number it's a big money number of our whole economy and our percentage of uh social spending for our gdp is actually quite a bit lower than the scandinavian countries which we constantly fetishize and say oh wouldn't it be great if we could live in norway and like the like you know uh, Childcare could be free and you could get paid to go to school, but the reality of that is that it does cost a lot of money. Um, anyway, so uh, Ford responded to the budget um, uh, right after it was, t- uh, you know, tabled, and he said um, this is crazy, there's so much spending, and that he would make uh, cuts, uh, tax cuts, uh, some of them to wealthy corporations, which is which ends up being in a big wealth transfer from the rich to the poor. I mean, the poor to the rich. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, uh, conservatives and Doug Ford upset about budget spending.
1: Yeah, let's keep the Doug Ford train rolling.
0: Yeah, because choo choo chooka chooka chooka
1: Also this week, he announced that he will decline to participate in the Black Com- Community Provincial Leaders Debate, which will take place on April 11th. And, and it's about the budget, right? The, It's a budget debate. Um, yeah, it's about just, like, provincial election issues, I think, more generally. Mm. Um, but it's organized with nine different black community groups, and every other party leader has agreed to participate except for him. Wow. Um, and when people criticized him about this, <laughs> he said, <laughs> and um, I am quoting, that um, he is the most supportive of black communities since his brother. <laughs> and this is—oh, sorry. No, here we go. No other politician supported the black community more. And he explains this by saying that in the past he's brought 80—and this is a, dir- a direct quote—80 mm-hmm. black kids to his Muskoka cottage for three years running. Oh, yeah. That is, that is how he says he supports the black no community. I with that whatsoever. Just on its own, okay. just bringing 80 children to your cottage—
0: like, yeah. why are you bragging about that? That doesn't it's, sound it's, like a healthy thing to weird. do. It sounds TBH. It's also like saying... Nobody has done more for the black community than I have. I have a black wife, or some, or like my yeah. my doctor is black, mm-hmm. you know, like whatever. Um, so that's fun. Also, um, eerily reminiscent of nobody loves women more than you. <laughs> nobody loves them more. Um, so uh, yeah. Next topic uh, is uh, the federal government response essentially to the doug ford climate change proposal which so far is nothing uh literally he doesn't i don't think he believes in climate change but he said that um he doesn't he um doesn't believe in a carbon tax or carbon pricing of any sort um which we will get to in this episode the different types of carbon pricing and their uh respective benefits Mm -hmm. um so don't worry, coming right at you. Not just going to throw around terms that you that you don't know and expect you to know them. Um, so he's uh, he he said that he won't like do a carbon tax um, or any carbon pricing. And Catherine McKenna has essentially come out. Uh, the envir- environment minister of Canada has said um, that Canada is going to be. Canada has, like, imposed already? Or? Well, basically what happens is that
1: the federal government is letting provincial governments set their own climate change policy as long as it fits the guidelines
0: that the federal government lays out. So it has to so like has a some baseline. baseline when you have to, like... Which they have to conform to, yeah. yeah. Probably so, do with emissions or yeah. something like that.
1: So if a provincial leader, um, like Doug Ford, if, God forbid, he's elected, um, doesn't comply with these regulations, there will be an overarching federal tax. So if um, the Doug Ford government doesn't comply with the the federal guidelines, there will be a federal tax put over top and... Casual fire alarm. Yep. (laughs) 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 Nothing's on fire in our house. (laughs) Yeah. And basically this week, Catherine McKenna says that the revenue that uh, the federal government gets from this overarching federal tax will go back to Ontario and not into the federal government itself. Mm -hmm. So Ontario residents can expect that they still will get... That like um, that benefit from having a carbon tax, yeah. Um, even though it doesn't come
0: from the provincial government, something's eh, on fine. fire somewhere. Uh, uh, anyway, so, so um, I'm sure that uh, anarchists will not be happy with that. No, but, but it's a <laughs> little li-
1: bit reassuring. Yeah, it's a bit reassuring to think that even if, um, I mean, not to display my. Political beliefs too much, but worst comes to the worst. <laughs> Doug Ford gets elected. Um, at least there will be some kind of climate regulation in Ontario.
0: Yeah. So um, th- th- one thing about this I I want to say is it's very um, it's 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 crazy to think that that just because um, a lot of these American conservative parties are funded by Coke brothers and mm-hmm. other, um, and Fake other oil, big other companies that have a vested interest in not, uh, you know, conforming to, or not, not reducing the effects of climate change. Um, I guess either like it, there's no it's not there's no possibility for Canadians to be in the same pocket of these oil mm-hmm. companies because um because we have different uh, election financing laws so I don't understand why conservatives continue to take this position but it's not a fundamentally it, people think this now but it's not a fundamentally and I and actually this is I'm actually defending conservatives here mm-hmm. so like I'm just going to give myself a pat on the back good job I'm doing bipartisan right congratulations yeah. um it's not a fundamentally conservative issue to oppose carbon pricing, and it's not fundamentally conservative to think that climate change doesn't exist. Um, it, unfortunately, that has been like in the tide of public or partisan conservatism in Canada, but um, it, it doesn't have to be like that. And mm-hmm. um, if you are a conservative and you're listening to this, there's a great article by Preston Manning written in the Globe and Mail a couple years ago about why... Um, about why conservatism or why, uh, like environmental conservatism is a fundamentally conservative value. And, um, it's very possible to align, um, the economics of, climate change policy with financial or fiscal conservatism. Mm. So I would encourage you to look into that if you um, are interested in, uh, in that for sure. Um, so without further ado, uh, speaking of climate change, mm-hmm. we're going to move now to our interview with Professor Robinson, yeah. which Kate is going to break down quickly for you now. Mm-hmm. So a couple months ago, I sat down
1: with Professor Robinson, who is a professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and the School of the Environment at U of T. He's also just like a really like professional guy. He is he does some stuff with UBC and he's also doing some stuff with the Copenhagen Business School. He's really well established International and, dude. International fellow in climate science. And he's particularly in... Instra- int- interested in how climate policy shakes down. So we talked about the different platforms that the provincial parties had at the time. Um, Bear in mind, this was a couple months ago, so Patrick Brown was still the conservative leader. Oh yeah, Um, (laughs) RIP. (laughs) RIP. Actually... Nah, no peace for him. Um, Yeah, fair. So things were a bit different back then, but we did talk about the difference between cap and trade and a regular carbon tax Mm -hmm. and how he thinks this will impact Ontario. Mm -hmm. We also talked about the importance of bringing this kind of green mentality into everyday life. Mm -hmm. So being environmentally friendly isn't a choice, It should be just a mandate that everyone has to follow. So we have building codes Mm -hmm. that mandate that, oh, you need to have fire exits in a building. Mm -hmm. You need to have a certain number of windows. You need to have ventilation. He thinks the same thing should happen with climate
0: positive Improvements, yeah, uh, which could apply apply to buildings in the same way. You know, mm-hmm. you have to have a certain Absolutely. type of windows that conserve a certain amount of uh, yeah, and are, heat, so that you can reduce the like you know energy that it takes to heat your building or
2: yeah, exactly.
1: My dad's a civil engineer, so he's told me there are things like this that are already happening, but it should be broader. Yes. like when you're teaching a class about um, American history, mm-hmm. you should talk about how that plays into climate science today. That's oh, a very weird example. That is a very
0: weird.
3: But example. like
1: his point is that there isn't there's not a specific sector Mm -hmm. that is green or environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. If we want to like survive as a species, Everything has to be environmentally friendly. Yes,
0: and I think that most millennials are, like, very aware of that. And I think that well, yeah, most it's people scary. our age are extremely, that makes them extremely anxious. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I noticed from your interview with Professor Robinson was that he was hopeful. That, and so if this, if this, if you have started listening to this episode and you're like, oh, God, I don't want to, like, I don't I know, want to see I know, climate like change Doomsday is so depressing episode, to think about. But this guy, he has some high hopes mm-hmm. for us, and it made me feel a lot better when I listened to him. And so... We hope that it makes you feel better too. Yeah. So, without further ado, uh, here's our episode. Oh, wait, no. One more ado. <laughs> um <laughs> okay, so quickly, uh we've already talked about Doug Ford and his climate change policy, which is nothing. Mm-hmm. Doesn't want to price carbon oh, at yeah. all. No, is not interested in reducing if uh no, he thinks that change. he
1: thinks that the wind cap and trade system or the liberal cap and trade system in Ontario is too expensive. Okay. Even though it's made Ontario over two billion dollars since it whoa, first started. Whoa,
0: whoa, yeah. Okay. Dude. So um so then so there's that. Uh we've talked about how Kathleen Wynn has implemented a cap and trade system which was like pretty like I think we are the third province to implement a system like that we were after British Columbia and uh, actually I think we're the second province to do mm-hmm. that so and we talk about that in the episode Yes, yeah, so so. don't worry knowledge is coming at you <laughs> real knowledge not yeah. ours <laughs> not a drunk one real knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> professoral knowledge <laughs> professoral you made that word <laughs> just uh, a little um so uh, and so uh, that was a pretty uh, big thing that she did uh, I think it was in 2015 that she rolled it out um and um and uh I think some of the money that is made from that goes to green energy. Yeah, I think so, too. It goes back into creating, like, green supporting
1: infrastructure. Yeah. So, for example, like, there's, um, in in Toronto, they just introduced this new, um... Like infrastructure benefits, so if you if you build a new house and you put in like green fixtures and a lot of green energy supporting things, you get money back from the provincial government. Nice. So it's encouraging people to build green homes, which yeah. is really
0: cool. That's awesome. And um, as far as we know, uh, Andrea Horvath, not uh, or the NDP, don't have like a huge uh, a climate. Plan there's yet. nothing on their website about um, it. They have in the PDF. They do have a section called climate change, mm-hmm. but it's like we're gonna reduce the effects of climate change. Yeah. we're gonna work. It's
1: um, and it's not. It's there's what no you specifics. call rhetoric and not a plan. Yeah, but we think, or we
0: we can assume that they'd probably keep the cap and trade I them. I think it says that. Yeah, uh, 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 link in bio to the NDP policy PDF if you want to read, really really read a really long PDF, PDF. Uh, <laughs> with a lot of really ugly colors. And yeah, it's just. It's It's not cute the not great branding no Um, all right now now for real without further ado here's our uh interview with professor robinson
1: um so i guess we'll get right into the questions um my first one is how much of an impact does provincial policy have on canadian climate change emissions or policy as a whole
3: It's huge. It's actually huge, partly because the provinces constitutionally in Canada own their resources, right? So the biggest single climate change policy that there has been in Canada to date by far that's had the biggest effect on reducing emissions was Ontario's decision to get out of coal for electricity generation. Because... we had a system that was about one-third of our electricity was generated from coal. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very carbon-intensive way to generate electricity, the most carbon-intensive way. And now we're down to almost zero on coal. Well, down to zero on coal. So that's, that's had the biggest single effect on total national emissions of anything that anybody's done. Uh, so the province can be very important.
1: Okay, great. That's good to know. It sometimes feels like what we do here has less of an impact because of all the oil sands and all that stuff coming out of the prairies. Right. What would you say to someone who thinks along those lines?
3: Well, we have it, it, all these problems are really complex, so we mm-hmm. have to deal with every piece of the puzzle. So Ontario can't do anything about tar sands extraction, um, but it can do a lot about electricity generation. right? And that, as I said, has been the biggest effect. Um, but we have to move on all fronts. Uh, no one province can solve the problem, no one country can solve the problem. But, but if we say, oh, we're too small and it's a global problem, nothing happens at all. Right. right? So everybody has a piece that they can work on. Um, and, and the challenge is actually to get everybody working on their pieces, mm-hmm. uh, together. And really, if you look around the world, there is this huge groundswell of movement. Uh, the, the, the question is, you know, Is it fast enough and soon enough to make a significant dent you know over the next 10 or 15 years Uh, but I'm encouraged by the fact that the real the locus the center of gravity has shifted it used to be we thought oh we gotta get countries to sign treaties that are mandatory and will force emission reductions Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of failed that Kyoto was uh, was an actual treaty but nobody followed it It's sort of fallen by the wayside. We've had a hard time getting agreement. Paris is the latest attempt, um, but it's a non-binding process. Um, So while that's all been happening at the international level, cities have started to act big time. So in many ways, they're the key actors now. And so there are these networks of cities. There's the C40 group of cities, which is now actually over 100 cities. There's the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. There's the Global Alliance of Mayors. There's all these networks of cities. And really cool things are happening at that scale. So we don't have to depend on some kind of global agreement to get action. And one of the cool things about cities acting is we don't know all the answers. We know a lot of stuff that we can do. Um, but we don't know what the best way forward is. So if you just have a few countries, you only have a few different kinds of things going on. But if you have thousands of cities all trying out different stuff, they're like little experiments all mm. over the planet, and we learn a lot from that. What works in Rio and you know what works in Copenhagen um, and what could we bring into Toronto and then what lesson can we give to other cities? So you have this whole web of experimentation happening now. It's really quite exciting.
1: Yeah, that sounds a lot more heartening than some other news coming out.
3: Yeah, I think part of the problem is everybody kind of younger than me has been brought up hearing this doom and gloom message, right? Mm. And so sustainability is all about limits and constraints. It's about cutting back. It's about doing without. It's about sacrifice, which probably won't work, and Mm -hmm. we're probably doomed. And You know, that whole message is deeply (laughs) embedded out there now. A hundred years ago, the future was felt to be, you know, something better. But nowadays, Mm -hmm. very few people think the future is a friendly place. It's sort of a frightening place. And I think that's a problem because we have to actually mobilize the whole planet on this stuff. So if our message is doom and gloom, Mm -hmm. we're actually working against mobilization. We're creating apathy and denial Uh, so I think it's really important to say, look, it can be better. It is in our hands. We can make a better world, Mm -hmm. um, and, and do it at a scale people can identify with. So buildings, we can build buildings that make people healthier, happier, more production and productive and improve the environment.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Like that's a way cooler idea than net zero, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: right? Like let's, let's reduce all the bads as low as we can get as our aspiration. No, no, our aspiration should be to make the world a better place, um, and so we need, we need to believe that's possible in order to be mobilized, to be willing to act. And I think, fortunately, over the last 10 or 15 years, more and more organizations and people are starting to aim at kind of net positive outcomes. We built a building at UBC designed to make people healthier, happier, more productive, to be net positive in terms of energy, uh, structural carbon, operational carbon, and water. Like a building that makes things better.
2: Hmm.
3: Uh, and so I think that's where we need to go. That is within our grasp, that idea. Uh, and so we need to be looking for examples of it. Uh, for I'll give you one tiny example here in Toronto. The first registered active house in the world is in Etobicoke. That's a house designed to make things better for okay. the people living in it and for the environment around it. Um, And there's about 50 or 60 of these around the world now, but we just haven't done the first one that was registered here. So that's what we need to be looking for. You know, where are there signs of of positive development where sustainability isn't about cutting back and and reducing, uh, but it's actually about, you know, creating processes that improve things.
1: Okay. So besides the doom and gloom messaging, what are some impediments towards getting towards these more positive... Ways of looking at climate change. There's
3: tons of them because well, we live in very path-dependent systems, right? In other words, we have a set of rules and procedures and the way we do things that were all developed before sustainability was on the agenda. Right. So they're not supportive necessarily. So when you hear people say, "Oh, that's not how we do things, right where right. you people say if it's not broke don't fix it mm. uh, and 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 that means there there's this lock-in this kind of lock-in effect so we have to actually change all those rules it's not just about policies it's good to have policy you know and we need policy because that's the kind of lighthouse that's what we're aiming at mm-hmm. but then you have to go deeper and you have to say what are the rules that govern what people do on Monday morning and their job descriptions and performance evaluation criteria codes of practice we have to get down in the guts of the institutions and change those things so it's not a small job because all of that path dependent means we're on a trajectory we're on a path right mm-hmm. that's not sustainable and we have to get on a sustainable path so we have to really dig down into the processes so it's that's not very glamorous mm-hmm. right? Um, But it can be incredibly empowering. Right. Uh, And people get unleashed. Nobody is for unsustainability, right? You don't go out there and say, let's have an unsustainability. I'm I'm working for unsustainability. No, everybody wants sustainability. They Mm -hmm. just don't see how they can get there. Right. And they don't feel they can make any difference Mm because they're one person in this huge, unsustainable world. Yeah. Um, So that's where institutions come in. That's where organizations come in. Can we make U of T sustainable, Mm -hmm. start to transform the university? That's a more manageable thing, and student groups, for example, have been very influential. At UBC, where I was, we I think we really did transform the university, and the student groups were crucial there, because without their support, I was Associate Provost Sustainability, so I'm trying to make all these changes. It was really important to be able to point to this wide groundswell of support in the student groups, and in faculty, and in staff. Um, that, you know, that justified and, and gave credibility to and political momentum for, for these changes. Uh, again, buildings I come back to because they're concrete. They're something, mm-hmm. you know, quite tangible. But there's a ton of other ways, and there's a lot of NGOs out there working on this kind of stuff. There's a lot of activists out working. So it's not hard to find places that a difference can be made. It's just that people feel oppressed by the weight of, 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 of the, what has to change, and they also don't feel it's their job, mm-hmm. right? Um, and because uh, we've created their, uh, processes where they say, oh, that's what they do. That's not what I do. That's what they do. So they have to fix it. Um, and that's true. So finding ways, like, well, I'll give you one t- concrete example that, relative to students. We sometimes talk about green jobs, right? we got to have more green jobs. I think that's a terrible concept, just a terrible <laughs> concept, because it implies there are not green jobs. Mm-hmm. But every job in the world is in the world. Right. So every job in the world interacts with people and interacts with the environment. Mm-hmm. And those are the two parts of sustainability. So every job can use sustainability. So mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is create pathways here at UFT, so that every single student will be offered a sustainability pathway, no matter what program they're in. Right. civil engineering or medieval history doesn't mm-hmm. matter, you'll be given a sustainability pathway on the view that you're going to be in the world right. and there will be opportunities for you uh, you are an agent of change uh, and can be in whatever institution, you don't have to become a professional in sustainability mm-hmm. and get a you know a, a degree in sustainability and then a professional job that's, that's a whole route for those who want to do that but that's a tiny percentage of everybody Right, everybody else is still going to be out there in the world Mm-hmm. And their organizations are going to be trying to figure out how to be more sustainable. So everybody has that opportunity, potentially. Um, so I, I, I do think uh, it's, it's part of it is messaging, just, just saying that. I give talks about being net positive, and people come up and say, no one's ever said it can be better.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Right? I've only heard it can be, it's getting worse. Yeah. Uh, so we got to think about what message we're conveying to people and point to these opportunities.
1: Okay. Wow. I like the sound of that for sure. Um, so, to get back down to Ontario a little right. bit, can right. you break down some of the terms that the political government and the, the provincial government is using? So, the um, up until recently, the Ontario Conservative Party wanted to talk about carbon pricing. Right. Can you explain the difference between that and cap and trade? Right.
3: They're actually both a form of, of carbon pricing. But they are talking about a carbon tax okay. versus cap and trade. Uh-huh. So with cap and trade, you basically set a limit, and then you sell allowances to allow you to make sure, sh- and you only sell enough allowances to fit under the cap. Okay. So if you're a company emitting so many tons a year, uh, you have to buy allowances for that many tons. Uh-huh. Uh, but but you're competing against other companies because there's a limit on how many allowances there are, right? Okay. So if a company, the company uh, if it's really expensive for you to, um, to reduce emissions, you'll buy the allowance. Whereas the company, where it's, if it's cheaper to reduce mm-hmm. than to buy the allowance, you'll reduce. Okay. So you, what you're doing is you're actually shifting the reduction to the cheapest areas of reduction. That's mm. the theory behind cap and trade. And you're setting a cap. Right. Okay. So nobody, you know, the overall level is fixed. And we're not going to have emissions more than that. And you're incenting the people for whom it's cheaper to reduce, to reduce. Mm -hmm. The people for so the the economics of it is you want the emission reduction to be done as cheaply as possible. So you're 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 providing that incentive. Carbon tax says we don't fix the, the the we don't have a cap on emissions. We have we put a price on carbon, so we know the price of carbon. And so if you have to pay more for everything that uses carbon, you have an incentive to reduce your carbon emissions in order to reduce that tax, right? So again, if it's cheaper for you to reduce than pay the tax, you will do that. So the incentive is kind of the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just a different mechanism. One, you know the price, but you don't know what effect it'll have. The other, you know the results, but you don't know how it'll be distributed. Okay. So... um, that's kind of the difference. In theory, they give exactly the same effects, but in practice, not so much. And that the devil's in the details. I'm actually a fan of carbon tax, which is the BC approach, mm-hmm. because basically you can reach everybody, um, and uh, you uh, you can. Uh, it's transparent, and it's really simple to administer. Mm. cap and trade is much more complex right so you got to you got to figure out the allowances and then you got to sell them you have an auction i worry that it's more it's less transparent Nobody understands it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of possibility for gaming behind closed doors. Yeah. And, you know, what the allowances are, what the, and what the, uh, how the auction is set up and do you give free ones to the existing emitters mm-hmm. or, you know, like there's, you have to work all that stuff out and that's negotiation and that's not happening in public. So my worry is it's, it, it, it's more able to be captured On the other hand, Ontario has done it. It's working and it's generated a lot of revenue that they're pouring back into emission reduction. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's been quite a success.
1: Cap and trade in Ontario. Cap and trade in Ontario. Okay.
3: Uh, So uh, in the end, you know, whichever works. If if the politics don't allow you to do tax, but they do allow you to do cap and trade, fine, go Mm -hmm. for it. Because anything that reduces emissions is what we're after. Right. So I have a personal preference, but... You know, if that doesn't work here, do the other, you know.
1: Okay. Are there any other policy alternatives that maybe provincial governments could look into, what they aren't pursuing?
3: There are the more standard policy alternatives. Cap-and-trade and and, and, and carbon tax are both what are called market-based instruments, right? Mm -hmm. Use the marketplace to try and uh, create change. The, The other kind of government policy is sort of standard command and control, right, where you just regulate Okay. So instead of doing cap and trade, you could just say you can't emit more than X, say per dollar of output, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's more punitive and coercive, and it doesn't have the efficiency benefits of causing the least cost people to save. It just everybody just complies with what the rules are. Um, so, but there are places where that might be a really good policy. For example, building codes. We have mm-hmm. building codes. Change the building code, and you can have you instantly affect all new buildings
2: Um,
3: so there are places where more standard regulation of that kind sort of command and control or or standards or uh, mandatory requirements where they can really work and one way to think of it is you use the market based instruments to change behavior at the margin and you bring up the regulations underneath as the floor okay and you the floor gets higher and higher over time but Mm -hmm. it's the market based instruments that are driving change out there um, and so that can be very powerful to use them in combination right. with each other. Um, and I think that's what we see. So appliance, uh, you know, I guess the third kind of program, so we have market base, mm-hmm. uh, using the price system. We have command and control mandating outcomes. Then there are the third one is sort of information programs. Okay. So when you go and buy a refrigerator, there's a label on it that tells oh, okay, you. okay. That. So yeah. that's an information program. Um, the, the jury is a bit out on how effective those are. There's not a lot of evidence they have a big effect on consumer behavior. Mm-hmm. But appliance labeling, the reason I mention it is the studies that were done way back showed that consumers didn't pay attention to the labels, but the manufacturers did. Mm. And all the worst-performing appliances disappeared. Okay. Because the companies didn't want to have, be on that table with the bottom. Right. right. So the really bad fridges and so on, uh, even though customers weren't paying much attention to it. Mm-hmm. So information programs can also be uh, important, partly because you me- you manage what you measure. So once the government requires measurement, like they're putting in a new policy now to benchmark buildings, so all well, mm-hmm. commercial buildings will have to report their energy use. I think that'll have a significant effect because suddenly it's visible if you have a, a, a really bad building. Right. So there'd be an incentive there. So those are the three, and it's really a mixture. you you got to do all. Nothing nothing is the perfect answer. You can't do it all with carbon pricing, or all with regulation, or all with information. You need some kind of mix.
1: Okay. So obviously you've heard about all the stuff with Patrick Brown and the PC party here in Ontario, and now the three main candidates in the leadership race are saying that because of their base, they aren't going to support uh, carbon pricing tax.
3: Yeah, that's a huge mistake. I think they're being left behind mm-hmm. by history on this. Um, it was right for them to say, I mean, carbon pricing is the perfect conservative policy because right. it's market-based, right? Use the market to mm-hmm. get what you want. So uh, in principle, conservatives would be most favorable to that over regulation, which mm-hmm. they see as government interference in the market. So so uh, either cap and trade or, or carbon tax, and even more carbon tax would be naturals for the sort of right-hand side of the political spectrum to support. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is, uh, it's very unfortunate, you know, to, to lose that. Cause that was a more progressive, uh, approach. Um, and we'll see. I mean, I think there's a little bit of difference among the different candidates mm-hmm. on how much opposed they are to, uh, to carbon pricing. But I feel that the tide is turning on that front I'm, I'm a congenital optimist, <laughs> so uh, maybe I'm, I'm seeing uh, you know, what I want to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they're a little out of step to retreat okay. on, on that. The, and, and one thing I'd say on that, at BC, the carbon tax was introduced in 2010, right? Wow. Or 8. 8 or 10, I've forgotten. 8, I think. Um, and everybody predicted that's politically radioactive, you know, it's death, Uh, It was introduced by the Liberal Party, which, as we know, is a conservative party in B.C. Uh Um, uh, And it was not. Mm. In fact, most people didn't even notice, because it's small compared to the price, the overall price, and even all the other taxes that already are in existence. Mm -hmm. Um, So it had behavioral effects. It started to change uh, use of of carbon-based energy forms, and it didn't generate this big backlash. In fact... In the subsequent election, I guess the election was 2010, the NDP had been supporting carbon pricing, because normally they do, Mm -hmm. um, a carbon tax. They came out against it because the government was for it as a very crass political move to try and get support um, uh, from people who didn't like being taxed. So Mm -hmm. they kind of, in my view, uh, sacrificed their principles for short-term political advantage. It didn't help them. Mm. And in fact, I saw Von Palmer, a columnist of the Vancouver Sun, did a a writing-by-writing analysis. And he said the carbon tax in most writings wasn't even an issue. So that's one lesson. Where it was an issue, it hurt the NDP Mm. to be against it. So what does that tell you? That tells you that the public isn't necessarily totally averse to a new tax. Now, what BC did that was brilliant, Gordon Campbell did, is he said all the revenues for that tax are going to reduce other taxes. So it's revenue neutral. Uh, so the average person will actually pay less tax hmm. with with the carbon tax in place because we'll reduce other taxes that they pay more of. Um, uh, and that made it, that was brilliant in the sense that it allowed the political case to be made. Mm-hmm. But it also made it really hard to reverse because when Christy Clark came in in B.C., she didn't like the tax. She would have been happy, I think, to kill it, mm-hmm. but she couldn't because she would have had to raise other taxes by about $4 billion mm-hmm. a year. So it made it politically invulnerable, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ontario government has chosen a different route. They've said, we'll do cap-and-trade, and we won't use those revenues to reduce other taxes, but we'll use them to fund green you know, uh, carbon reduction. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a different approach. That has huge advantages, too, because you're getting all this other money spent on reducing emissions, uh, but it's, a, it's politically a different calculus. I think the Conservative Party in Ontario thinks that a tax would be totally re- resisted by the public, mm-hmm. but I think the BC experience shows that that's not necessarily the case. It depends how you frame it. And I think they would have the chance to say, let's do a, a significant carbon tax if they wanted to make it revenue neutral, so actually people would pay less tax mm-hmm. than, than without it. The average person. If you have a private airplane, you'd pay a lot more, right?
2: <laughs> but that's fine. That's yeah. Um,
3: the average citizen would pay less, so I think they had an opportunity there mm-hmm. to actually have a niche policy that would differentiate them from from the other parties, right? Uh, and would contribute to climate change mitigation in a big way,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, but they're they're not seeing that. Okay. And unfortunately,
1: why do you think that is? I mean, everyone talks about this like base that is against sustainability climate change
3: that's why that there's this perception out there that oh people hate taxes and mm-hmm. any new tax will just be like uh, really opposed uh and that's why i point to bc because mm-hmm. it, it and it's not that british Columbians are rabid environmentalists totally different than ontarians i don't think they're very different at all in a lot of their attitudes it's that remember when Trudeau was asked about women in cabinet and he said, why are you doing this? He said, Cause it's, because it's 2015. Mm-hmm. Know, well, I say the same thing on this climate stuff. You know, it's, it's 2018, guys. Mm-hmm. Get with the program. It's happening. yeah. Uh, and, and the public is, as I said, nobody's opposed to sustainability. They don't see what they can do or they don't want to be hit particularly hard compared to others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if it was framed in the right way, I think it could be politically very viable. Uh, but of course, I don't have bolsters at my command. <laughs> and I'm not reading, you know, all, right. the, all the data. So maybe they know something I don't. Mm-hmm. But I feel they, there could be a carbon tax agenda for the uh, Conservative Party of Ontario that would not be that would be popul- that would be politically popular.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, that's kind of hopeful too, I guess.
3: Yeah, although they don't seem to agree. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's easy for me to say, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not accountable in any way. I can just say anything I want. Uh, But that is my view, you know, based on looking at this for a while.
1: Okay, so do you think that climate change will be an election issue for Ontario?
3: I don't know, uh, because we have a a wily, uh, you know, politically experienced premier Mm -hmm. really playing the cards... And now we have this turmoil. You know, it looked like the election was a foregone conclusion. Now mm-hmm. it's kind of back up in the air again. Uh, who would have believed the Liberals had another chance, uh, you know, three months ago, two months ago? Um, so I think it's all up in the air now. Um, and uh, and I, I do think one thing about elections is you never know what they're going to turn on. Like what becomes mm-hmm. the issue sometimes comes right out of left field. Right. So uh, I don't see climate change... Uh, looming as a big issue in this election but it, it's you know it's quite possible mm-hmm. this leadership race and the conservative side could throw up some really interesting differences because i think the spectrum's pretty wide right right um and so somebody who comes with a, a, a progressive climate agenda idea that might become a factor it's not going to dominate the campaign mm-hmm. for sure uh, but it might become a factor uh or not you know hard to say
1: okay it feels like, at least in some parts of Canada, climate change is becoming um, almost less of a political issue because most people agree that it is happening and that we should do something about it. Do you think that's positive for...?
3: Totally. Yeah, I like the idea that we're not trying to create behavior change to sustainability because as long as we have to do that, we're failing, mm-hmm. right? It means that the norm isn't, isn't right and we have to sort of torque people into something different. I prefer the term normalizing sustainability. It's when sustainability just becomes part of the air, you breathe, and of course you do it, mm-hmm. uh, that we have succeeded. Um, and I think we're moving a little more in that direction. It becomes just more normal. Right. Um, for example, when we build a building now, you, I still have you know, lots of discussions where people say, oh well, it's going to cost us more to do all this sustainability stuff mm-hmm. and you know we have to, we can't afford that. Nobody says that about the labor code. Mm. Or health and safety. Nobody says, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, health and safety rules are going to cost us more, so we, we'll just not do them, right? <laughs> it's, because it's just normalized. It's right. part of what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the labor code. You've got to meet the labor code, you know, right? <laughs> like, it's not a debate. Yeah. So that's where sustainability has to get to. Okay. Where it's just, of co- you know, of, well, might cost more, might not cost more. It doesn't matter. You've got to do it. Right. right? Uh, and, and I think we're moving closer to that because more and more people are thinking well you know why not like mm-hmm. of course we should make better buildings and you know why wouldn't we uh so i do feel uh, there's a shift uh in a positive direction and we're going to get to a point where we say you know lead gold for new buildings is not some aspirational gee can we afford it it's mm-hmm. like the basement right you know it's just the given Lead Platinum becomes the given. You know, the, mm-hmm. the thing moves up. Remember I talked about the the basement moving up? Yeah. That's what I think will happen. Um, and if you look at other jurisdictions, I do a lot of work in Denmark. You know, I have a fair bit in other places in Europe. And there is that sense uh, even more than mm-hmm. here than, well, you know, it's just what you do. Um, so I think it's coming
1: and, for sure. Okay. So the everyday voter, the everyday Ontario person what can they do to help kind of move that along or get things going even faster i
3: think uh, i think they there's a couple things they can do one is you know have that be a factor in their voting behavior but we know the average person does not read party platforms and like most people can't myself included, couldn't recite the platforms of yeah. the three parties, yet we're voting. So I, I think to ask people to get deeply engaged in the politics of it in terms of understanding all the platforms, that's a bit much. Right. Um, but, you know, sometimes it is an issue. And mm. it, like the carbon tax was an issue in B.C. in the 2010 election. So then you can use that as a criterion. But I think more importantly is look at your own life, you know, especially perhaps your job and maybe your home depending Mm -hmm. on your circumstances, right? Whether you own your home or not, for example. Um, Most companies now are trying to do more sustainability stuff, right? So there's opportunities uh, to find out, you know, what's going on in your workplace. And create, you know, little eddies of, of collective response, and so on. You can get involved a little. Bit. It's not like massively onerous, but you can find out and get involved, and that's empowering because you're part of a larger group. You're not just the individual trying to, you know, tilt at the windmill. Mm-hmm. Um, you're actually finding out what is your company doing, and you know, is is there a role? What can you do in your in your existing job? You don't have to go and and go out in the streets and become an activist. Mm-hmm. Lots of people want to do that, and that's great. But not everybody has to do that. Um, so that, and then at home, there are things that will. And, and what I'm, we're trying to say to the building industry: don't focus so much on the environmental stuff. Focus on human well-being,
2: because mm-hmm. right?
3: that's what people really care about. Um, and that brings the environmental stuff along for the ride. So there are things you can do uh, if you're if you're building a new house, or you're buying a new house, or you're just moving into. Uh, 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 you know, uh, less you can do in terms of renter because you don't own the place. But if you are a homeowner, there are definitely things you can do that will make your life better. You'll sleep better. You'll have better air quality. You'll have better natural light and so on. So we're trying to say, focus on the human well-being side. It's very tightly coupled with the environmental. So they go along together because air quality, right, and natural light, those are environmental circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, And so go to Active House in Etobicoke and you see the effect of that. So I think there's actually quite a lot of things um, and you don't have to become an activist, uh, although that's a great thing to do, but not everybody's going to. You can just get a little more involved in things that will, that are not just you sacrificing to make a better world, mm-hmm. uh, cause that's a lot to ask, but that actually will improve your life as well. Um, so I think, uh, more and more, uh, in the, in the, in the private sector, and in government agencies, there are these kind of opportunities that, you know, everybody's trying to figure out how to make their enterprise or their organization more sustainable. So if you care about it, there are opportunities, mm-hmm. for sure. And it's good that they're, they're collective. It's not just you alone you know you're joining right, yeah. a, a process
1: yeah you're not just composting by yourself
3: right and nobody else is doing it. yeah remember well you won't remember because um, you weren't around but <laughs> uh, when recycling came in first in Ontario it was yeah in my Kitchener. parents
1: said no one did it before like they right. had no idea what it was
3: right exactly so it came in in the 80s mm-hmm. uh in Kitchener Waterloo the first blue box wow uh in Canada. And, They predicted a take-up rate of about 8%, because that would have been typical of new kind of programs to get people to change. They Mm -hmm. got 85 in the first two years. Why? I think the reason was you have to put it out on the curb. Mm -hmm. It's highly visible. So, everybody could see who was putting their blue box out. <laughs> Insulating your wall, nobody knows. Yeah. right. Do it or not do it, nobody hasn't. But it was highly visible. Okay. And so, people, and that's a normalization process. Mm-hmm. It's just what you do. You put your blue box out, right? And right? it just becomes part of normal behavior. Yeah. And you don't even think about it. You don't to say, should I put out my blue box or not? It's just, it comes with the garbage, you know, like it's just mm-hmm. what you do. So, I think there are uh, more and more things like that. Um, that uh, where it just becomes part of what you do. Okay. Uh, a, a little tiny example is uh, desks, uh, variable height desks. I was when I go to Copenhagen, I was amazed. Everybody has var- it's just part of the norm. Mm-hmm. You just get when you buy a desk, so, so you can stand at your desk or sit at your desk, right? Right. That's a human well-being thing. That's a health thing. Mm-hmm. That's a sustainability issue. Um, so, and I just discovered that uh, the faculty of arts and science here are buying these desks. You know, oh, okay. So it's, it's coming.
1: Yeah, that's great. And so for people who aren't homeowners, like students, people around right. my age, what they can do is to get more involved with student groups, like you said, at UBC.
3: Yeah, and there's a bunch of them here at U of T, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I work quite a lot with the Sustainability Commissioner of the U- UTSU, you know, the University mm-hmm. of Toronto Student Association, and we're trying to develop all kinds of new programs. I have some students working with me on recycling behavior, and they, on their own, just started doing it. Experiments about changing the signage and seeing if people recycled more or less, and then I had them in my class last term. So we had a group of students, and we did Sid Smith and we changed the signs and see if people recycled differently with, you know, with different signs. Um, so there's all of those kinds of things. There's another st- student group I'm working with, again in my course is about green roofs at Trinity and mm-hmm. can we maybe put a green roof r- on this building right over here, the North Devonshire building. Right. Um, uh, and if Trinity builds a new building, can there be green roofs? And should we grow food or should they be places where you go and sit? And mm-hmm. What about water retention for resilience and all this stuff. And they're, they're, they got money to support their work and they're quite excited because it might actually, you know, that might happen. Mm-hmm. It might be done because of the work they did. Um, so uh, I, had, I had six groups last term working on, I had one working on purchasing policy. Could we change the purchasing policy at U of T so U of T starts buying more sustainable things? Mm. Um, this is a campus as living lab course, so they, they're all doing projects for operational staff. So we're trying to expand that. Our goal is 1,000 students a year doing on-campus sustainability projects, with operational staff and 5,000 students a year out in the community working with organizations. This term I have three groups, two working with the city and one with the Ministry of Environment, Minister of Energy on, one's working on carbon pricing actually mm-hmm. in the city of Toronto. Wow. Uh, one on divestment in the city of Toronto, one on in, uh, district heating in Ontario. So there, there's course, there's curricular opportunities. Look mm-hmm. around for the courses that allow you to engage with these things and it's quite fun because you spend most of your time as a student writing papers right in mm. courses and reading literature and and you know that's great but, <laughs> uh, but it's nice to do something a little different sometimes yeah, so actually sure. working on a real world project that might get implemented learning the skills of how to work with a, a, a so called client organization mm. um, those are different skills and it's a different kind of thing uh, and most of the students who do that I found really enjoy it because there is that kind of real world potential applicability so there's curricular opportunities there's co-curricular opportunities the student groups and other things that are going on there's lots of things like that and i do think it's nice to get out of the box a bit of just sitting and reading referee journal articles and writing <laughs> essays. <you> know, like,
1: <laughs> yeah i agree I, with that know, for sure <laughs> yeah
3: so uh so it can be enjoyable mm-hmm. as well
1: okay well is there any final comments you want to share with us about Climate change in Ontario, what it means to you, what it can mean to you, regular people.
3: Well, I'm going to betray my optimistic take, but in a way, the generation of students now, you guys now, are going to fix the planet, right? Because this is the time. Mm-hmm. And, and the tide is turning a little bit, uh, and opportunities are emerging. So it's an exciting, you know, the, your work life, if you say from now to 40 years from now, or whatever that time of that will be, even though it's the gig economy and there's no lifetime employment anymore and you got to have your <laughs> personal brand and sell yourself. <laughs> now, all of that is true, uh-huh. uh, but it's also a time when real, thing, real change is starting to happen. So I think it's a very exciting work life awaits to f- sort of figure out these things and sort them out. So you get to fix the planet.
1: <laughs> okay, thank you so much. This has been great.
0: Okay, uh, so that was our interview with uh, Professor Robinson, and I'm back here with Kate Reeve. We're still drinking Chardonnay. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, I want to know Kate, does this change anything for you? what uh, what did you what did what did your interview with Professor Robinson yield? Well, first off, I left his office and I was so
1: energetic. It was such an enthusiastic experience That's to talk awesome. to him about it. I know I he's love that okay he's gonna listen to this um because we have to send it to him so i'm not gonna be like weird but he's a really nice guy <laughs> don't be weird i'm not gonna be weird he's a super nice guy and he is obviously so passionate about his job and he he actually emailed me like last week Aww. sending me a new link to a climate change thing at u of t oh my God. like he's invested super, in your education he's very invested in my education <laughs> and i was like yeah tara and i are both doing like nmc it doesn't really have anything to do with climate and he was like Oh my god, climate change is so important in the Middle East. We have to talk about oil, we've talked about all this stuff, and it was like, oh my god. Yeah. Anyway, long story short, I thought it was really great to talk to him. I'm really thankful that he sat down with me, and it absolutely impacts who I'm gonna vote for. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we need climate change legislation in Ontario. Ontario has a huge GDP, or a huge um, greenhouse gas e- emitter, and it's something we really need to think about because mm-hmm. even if you don't wanna have kids, who knows, you might live till you're like 120.
0: And already, bad shit's going down. Who Have knows you seen the ha- snow today? Who, know, who knows the advancements that will happen? Yeah. I mean, maybe you will be a sentient being in mm-hmm. 200 years. I don't... Yeah. You don't want to see the destruction of the world. That would be really scary. I mean, it's already kind of falling apart. Water is rising. But if you do want
1: There's kids, snow in your April. kids will be very unhappy. Yeah. So wow. anyway, what about you, Tara? Uh,
0: definitely, this is an election issue for me. Um, I used to work for a... Uh, h- here's, my, here's some bipartisan credentials. I used mm. to work for a non-government organization that was trying to convince conservatives that green conservatism was a big thing and that conservatism and green public policy can go together and actually, fundamentally, are, uh, like, synchronized Mm -hmm. uh, ideologically. So... This is a huge election issue for me, and I was super happy to see uh, Patrick Brown adopt a carbon tax in his platform. Yeah, to be fair. That came on the back of years of work of that organization, Canadians for Clean Prosperity, who our friend Molly Anderson works for, that she Mm -hmm. was on the podcast last week. Shout out to Molly. so this is definitely an election issue for me. It's very disappointing to see the conservative party sliding back on this because ultimately, it like it like lowers the bar mm-hmm. for the rest of the province. I feel like uh, yeah or, on on this and and then you have less choice. Like why why do you have to decide between climate change policy and like fiscal conservatism? You don't. No, you shouldn't have to. Um, so, uh, but you do in this case. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't vote for Doug Ford if you are, care about the environment. Yeah. Um, uh, so obviously, like, I have to go in the, uh, Andrea Horvath, uh, Kathleen Wynn vote on this. Um, uh... You know, for now. Who knows? Everything could change. Yeah. But, but maybe, maybe not. But probably not. <laughs> I mean when we started this whole thing, Patrick Brown was still running. I so know it's this is the shit Stanford thing has really turned yeah, sh- turn, sh- yeah. Sh- thrown a monkey wrench into this whole thing. So <laughs> we're gonna leave now, uh, and have some dinner. So mm-hmm. uh thank you for listening to our fourth episode of Undecided. We made it Podcast. to four. I can't believe it. Will we make it to five? I don't know. We will. We'll, we'll be, be back. Oh my god, Kate. My we favorite farmers. optimist. <laughs> <laughs> we have a schedule. Yeah, we have a schedule. We're really on it. We're very excited to bring you um, new uh, new topics in the coming weeks, including feminist policy in Ontario, mm. strategic voting, yep. education, uh, healthcare. employment, healthcare, yeah, so please stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, please subscribe, uh, if you haven't already, on iTunes, uh, and, if you, and if you do subscribe leave us a rating and a review um, or on any other podcast app that you listen to us on uh we we're on player fm and stitcher um that really helps get the word out and um helps to uh uh you know bring this to other people um so so we'd really appreciate if you do that so i think that concludes episode four uh enjoy the rest of your week we'll see you back here next friday on undecided podcast
2: To me.